Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that's deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. Yeah, and just as every week, we uh, suggest and encourage you to do this. If you have any questions about some of the things you've been reading about the Bible, please email them to uh, your questions. Sorry, email them to Grove or info Grove Church. Uh, even though we're not able to get to all the questions all the time, we do our very best to get to to get to them as much as we can. Um, so please feel free to do that. We love and look forward to those Q and A podcasts. Yeah, awesome. We just did one uh, a few days ago. Yeah, we launched so one a few days ago. Good times. Uh, so this week, just to jump into the Bible talk, uh, we are we are wrapping up. My favorite book of the Bible. And wah, so wah, wah. we didn't get to spend too much time in it. Uh, but uh, we're wrapping up Ecclesiastes. And, and really, uh, I wanted to highlight this week the, the end of the book. So not the actual last few lines of the book, but in chapter 12, um, which is the final chapter, Solomon, uh, it's really this interesting picture of the end of life. And so I'm just going to read the scripture really quick and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verses one through eight says this, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors of the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound at, at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid of what is high, the tares are in the way, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets." Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken in the cistern, the dust returns to the valley as it was, and the spirit of God returns to to God returns to God who gave it. Vanities of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. You kind of read that like you were sad. We're closing Ecclesiastes a little bit. So, well, well done. Um, well done. Here's what I think is really interesting about this, because again, um. Remember that Solomon is writing this, and Solomon is reaching the end of his life, and he's kind of realizing how much of his life he's wasted, um, just pursuing pleasure, pursuing sin, all these different things. And so I think there's almost – you can read between the lines. You can kind of see the sadness in Solomon as he's writing this where he says, don't be like me, um, where he's kind of beginning to remember God in his old age, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And then he goes on this poetic um, description of old age, which is kind of like, I mean, if, if you're older and listening to this, I'm sorry, but it's just like one of those things where like, as he's reading it, he talks about um, before the days draw, the years draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. Mm-hmm. Or in other words, like, it's not even like, I just don't even enjoy life right now. And he says, when the keepers of ho- the house tremble, the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. It's just this really interesting picture of what it, I don't want to say tragedy because always turning our attention to God is never a tragic thing. It's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And when people live their whole lives in sin and come to Christ, even at the very end, that's still a wonderful and beautiful thing. Um, but it is sad to think of how much time is wasted. And Solomon is thinking about how much time he is wasted um, not remembering 
his creator, not remembering all of these things. He and he just says at the end, it's just it's just all vanity. Everything that was pursued, um, all of the pleasure that he felt, all of the wealth that he gained at the end of the day, um, without God, it's like striving after the wind. So. And you can see why I like Ecclesiastes. It's just kind of like one of those books where it it, it hits you really hard with yeah. uh, with what it's talking about. But I think it's um, when read correctly, it's a really beautiful picture of God's presence in the midst of life, even when it seems meaningless. Yeah, and I think it's also it's I when I when I hear it being read, I literally can feel and almost see this like it's the final monologue. It's everything has just played out, and it's Solomon's last statement that should carry some of the most important weight that we carry for sure. So uh, I'm sorry that we're done with the book of Ecclesiastes, Evan. I apologize. It's okay. I'll, I'll uh, be all right. But now we get to jump into uh, this week, one of the, um, probably I think one of the more, for me, intimidating books in Revelation. Uh, and I know we've already gone through it once earlier on in the year, and now we're going to cycle back through it. So the hope is now to kind of spend a little bit more time deep diving into this book and kind of getting into some of the nitty gritty of it. Um, but I do want to take a moment as we launch into the book of Revelation this week. Uh, I think it's important to, to heed the words of verse three, uh, because I think it's a really good reminder as we're reading this book. Uh, and it says this in verse three, it says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. Uh, and I think it's a great reminder as we, we lean into, even the next, you know, a few chapters that we're talking about, uh, what what the angel of the Lord is saying to the, the different churches throughout the New Testament world. Um, but it's just a reminder, as we re- read Revelation, it's worth reading. There's value. There's blessing to it. And we need to hear its message, heed its message, and do what it says. Uh, because as John says in Revelation, the time is near. Um, and one of the things that I did earlier on is just studying this book because I felt like it was one of the things I needed to do. There was a commentary that I, I read in conjunction in reading the book of Revelation a while ago. Uh, and the commentary that I'll probably refer to a lot is called Preaching the Word. Uh, and it talks specifically one on Revelation where it just says the Spirit speaks to the churches. Uh, and there's a couple pages there that have a couple quotes that I want to read to you today uh, as we kind of launch into this book of Revelation. And then I won't say much after this. But uh, here's one of the quotes on page 23 of that commentary. It says this, referring to Revelation, referring to this launching and opening pieces uh, of, of what the book is telling us. It says this, when we feel the magnetic force of temptation, we need to visualize the inescapable judgment of God described in chapters 6 to 16, which we'll get to next week. It says, we need to pray that God will use the revelation of his wrath. And I love this picture to bulldoze the wickedness that is wooing us. Uh, and it's such an incredible reminder for you and I, as I, as I read revelation recently and was reminded this is not a book of punishment for me as a follower of Christ. This is a beautiful book of God's uh, wrath, his just and wrath being poured out finally over sin and those who choose to stay in it. Uh, and so when we read it, we've got to remember like when we're tempted to do something, when sin is wooing us, that we need to be reminded of the visual of like God's wrath is being poured out and it's not going to be pretty. Uh, and so we see that as we get into the book further. Um, but it's one of those things too. Just being reminded for. And then the second quote I want to read to you says this, the outpouring of God's wrath is meant to condemn everything else that you trust. God's judgment is actually his kindness in disguise. He uses it while we live to lead us to repentance and salvation. God judges us so that he can save us. 
Uh, and again, I'm, I'm reminded of scripture where it says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, but it's also God's justice that brings us and draws us to, sa- to being saved. Uh, and so as we read this book this week, as you read the different letters into the, to the d- different churches and the highs and the lows and uh, the combination thereof, there's, there's a lot of incredible pieces to it. Um, even some system, or uh, what is it? Not grammatical, but acrostic type dynamics where he takes one church that's doing well at the, the very front end and it ends with the, a church that's doing well. And then the two churches, one step towards the center, uh, they're doing okay. And then the, the two churches in the middle are, are just hedonistic and needing help. So, uh, but as we read revelation, as we jump into this book, this starting this week, uh, I want to encourage you. It's a good book to be reminded of God's wrath and judgment. Yeah. Uh, I love the line that you read where it says, we need to pray that God will use this revelation of his wrath to bulldoze the wickedness that is wooing us, which first off, great alliteration. Yes. And the, it's very the poetic, which you love. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's a beautiful picture of um, as Christians today, particularly as believing Christians who know we're not going to experience so much of this wrath, um, how do we read it? So I think that was great. Um, so this week, we're also going to be reading through Second and Third John. Uh, last week, we read through First John. And these are interesting books uh, because while it's not definitive, I do think that a really great explanation of, of these letters comes kind of like this, where First John was written um, – and meant to be sent to a wide group of churches around a specific area. Second John was written to a specific church, and Third John was written uh, to possibly the pastor of that church. So you can kind of imagine if John sent all three of these letters at once, one of them's personal correspondence with the pastor, one of them is to be read at that church, specifically for that church, and then one of them is to be read at the church, and then circulated around to be read by all the churches. Um, and again, that's not definitive. Uh, but I do think it's a really helpful way of kind of viewing these letters. So Second John uh, is written by John to the elect lady and her children, uh, which is kind of an interesting – it's phrase it's phraseology that we don't see anywhere else in the Bible. Nope. So it's kind of uh, – One of a kind. Yep. So it, because it's one of a kind, it's very hard to figure out what exactly John is talking about here. Um, so there's two kind of – there's two uh, explanations of what it could be. So first off, it could literally be – a Christian woman and her children. So the elect lady and her children, it could be just a lady that John knows he's writing a letter to. Um, and so that could be it. Uh, the other interpretation, and this is kind of where I land is that uh, the elect lady is uh, a euphemism for the church. And then the children would obviously be the members of that church. Um, the reason I'd land here. And again, this is a very open-handed thing. So I, I very much could be wrong. Um, but the reason I land here is because just when you're reading through the letter, it refers to uh, the sister and her children, which is is most likely another church and the members of that church as well. And just kind of some of the content of the letter, um, it doesn't make as much sense if he's writing this to a person. Because when we read through 3 John, that is very obviously written to a person, whereas this one seems to be more uh, corporate in mm-hmm. its idea of what yeah. it is. So that's kind of the idea there. Um, with that being said, uh, it's very concerned, like so many of the of the later epistles. Again, we talk about how the epistles that are written later, they're very concerned with false teachers coming in. Um, and in Second John, he's actually talking about how 
these are kind of itinerant preachers. And what I mean by that is they're not people who live in the city and preach there. They're people who go from town to town and they kind of preach their their thing. And John is saying, um, don't even show these people hospitality. Like if they're preaching a false gospel, don't give them a platform. Certainly don't let them speak to your congregation, but also he's uh, encouraging the people of the church. Uh, don't even let them stay at your home, all these different things, uh, but just kind of move them on their way. This isn't something to be messed around with. Um, and we can kind of get this idea that, especially maybe with um, really the idea of showing Christian charity, that maybe there was a little bit of a foothold that was being given to false teachers in these churches. And John is kind of writing to make sure that those things stop. So um, really short book. You're going to be able to read it in one sitting for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's kind of an interesting topic there. Third John uh, is writ- is an interesting letter because it joins Titus and Timothy as the only epistles who are written directly to one recipient as opposed to written to a church. Um, and so you'll remember, <coughs> excuse me, when we talked about Titus and Timothy, uh, this is at the end of Paul's life. He's writing to uh, two of his closest friends and just kind of giving them some encouragement. And this is a similar letter. Um, it's not named after the recipient, which is a bummer because poor Gaius never gets his due. Uh, but uh, John is writing again towards the end of his life, although in this case, he's not um, hes not about to be murdered for the faith. He's about to just die of old age, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's very old at this point. Um, and... <laughs> Third John is kind of a funny book, um, mostly because it's very short and it's just a letter of practical, um, I guess to bring it into modern context, it basically Gaius is a pastor and there's a guy in the church who's just a huge pain and just the worst. And so John is writing about how um, we don't know exactly everything that's going on, but there's a guy named Diotrephes, um, if, that, if that's how you pronounce it. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, but basically he's just kind of acting like a tool bag and he's putting himself, he's trying to make himself be the most uh, important member of the church is kind of what we can glean um, from what John is saying. And so uh, I won't spoil everything because I do think it's just kind of a fun, quick little read, but John is giving uh, this pastor Gaius uh, advice basically on how to deal with this in the church. And he also also offers some different encouragement. So again, short books, both of them, uh, but really interesting pictures into what John is thinking at the end of his life and also just kind of his advice for churches and a pastor who are going through different issues. Yeah. And I always try to think practically sometimes like, well, how, what has that made? How does it impact me at all? But I think it's worth understanding like false teachers are always a big deal. Uh, we are always being pulled one way or the other. And so it's always, it's always important to heed that, but at the same time, it also don't be, don't be Dodge or however you say his name. Don't right. be, don't be D. I'm just going to call him a D. Don't be that guy. Uh, don't be that guy. Uh, but yeah, I think fun short reads. And for me, another book you can check off the list say, oh, I read that book of the Bible instead of just a chapter. So um, we're going to jump into first Kings uh, and chapter 12. And it's really this story uh, is this after Solomon. We spent a lot of time talking about Solomon, trying to give you a really good picture of who Solomon was. This is after Solomon had uh, had kind of handed off the kingship. It's now Rehoboam who's going to step in and be king uh, over, I believe it's Israel. Um, it's the United Kingdom at this point. Yeah, since not divided yet, but it becomes divided. Spoilers. Um, oh, shoot. I think I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, but Rehoboam, who is uh, being going to a place called Shechem to be uh, made king, and then there's a, a man who, who was named Jeroboam, who we've, I think we've talked about him. He fled from Solomon because Solomon was out to get him. Uh, and so when Rehoboam came to the to the kingship, he then gathered all the people that were under Solomon's rule. 
uh, was with him. He didn't gather him. He was gathered with the people and then went to Rehoboam and said this in verse four of chapter of 12. It says this, your father was a hard master, which side note gives you another in, insight into Solomon. Uh, he was not necessarily the easiest guy to work for because Solomon had do, things to do. But so Re, for Jer, so Jeroboam and the, all the assembly says, your father was a hard master. Uh, they said, lighten the harsh labor demands and heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. Then we will be your loyal subjects. So Rehoboam, who's now king, replied, give me three days to think this over and then come back to, to uh, come back for my answer. So the people went away. Verse 6, King Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had counseled his father Solomon. What is your advice, he asked. How should I answer these people? Now, these, these advisors had been with Solomon. And the older counselor said this in verse 7. If you are willing to, to be a servant of these people today and give them a favorable, favorable answer, they will always be your loyal subjects. But then verse 8. Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men and instead asked the opinion of young men who, who had grown up with him and were now his advisors. What is your advice? He said, how should I answer these people uh, who want me to lighten the burdens imposed by my father? The young men replied, this is what you should tell those complainers who want a lighter burden. I think I know what they're going to say now. It says, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. Reminds me of that that, uh, that clip from ha- Happy Gilmore with Ben Stiller. And <laughs> we joke about this in the office. My fingers hurt. <laughs> but now your back's going to hurt because of landscaping duty. Um, so Rhea Bowen, long story short, takes the advice of younger leaders, his peers, his friends, and rejects the advice of older leaders uh, who have counseled Solomon, who were there when the probably when the, the the decree was made. This is the standard and expectation for all of these servants of mine, all of these people. Uh, and he rejects him, and then goes with his crew. He goes with his friends. It says these are guys that he grew up with. He knew them, and there might have been a lot of trust there. There might have been, but the diff- the interesting thing is, it says this in verse sixteen: When all Israel realized that the king had refused to listen to him, this is all Israel. It says they responded, "Down with the dynasty of David." We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Back to your homes, O Israel. Look out for the house of David. And it's such a tragic passage because Rehoboam comes in as as brand new king, ready to establish his reign and rule. He has the opportunity for loyalty, but he disregards the advice and the counsel of those who are wiser than him. And and I could go off and, you know, we can go on a tangent. Well, that's the problem with this generation. I would just say that's the problem with immaturity. We do not have like to listen to those who have gone before us. We do not like to count seek counsel of older, wiser people. Uh, and I don't think this is just generational. I don't think it's the teenagers today. They need to hear, like no. I think it's I think it's older generations. I think we have to, got to learn the value of cross wisdom, cross counsel for those older, for those younger, and really being able to be discerning and make the right choice. Um, and and I think it's such a tragic passage, but I think it'll preach for days. And since I'm a preacher, I like to look through that lens a little bit. But it is it is an unfortunate reality to see God's people walk away and say, down with the dynasty. Yeah, and there's just a lot of pride in Rehoboam to kind of go for it. And his advisors are saying, you know, show grace to the people, lighten their load, and they're going to love you forever, which is absolutely true. And then Rehoboam just gets in front, and he's kind of just like, no, I'm going to be – and it, I, it's kind of hard because obviously it's all in hindsight, right? But like, what are you thinking? Yeah. Like, what do you think is going to happen here? And obviously he turns uh, the people against him. And again, one last reference to Ecclesiastes before we move forward Vanity. Um, with the rest of our lives. But um, no, there's a passage in Ecclesiastes that talks about the idea that um, you can build up your children's inheritance all that you want. You can build up wealth and power and all these different things. But if you're paraphrasing, if your kid's a moron, it doesn't matter anyway. And that's 
uh, the kind of poetic justice, I suppose, in a way for Solomon, who spends all of his time building up this kingdom uh, over the course of his reign, and his son just blows it almost yep. instantly coming onto the throne. So, um, yeah, tragic thing. It is what it is. But I'd say, instead of talking about the bad king that is Rehoboam, we can talk about a good king. Uh, and in our Second Chronicles highlight segue. this week, segue. Uh, we're going to talk about Asa. Um, Asa is the grandson of Rehoboam, so that would make him the great, great grandson yes. of David. Good job. Um, you know, I try math. And so uh, he's one of the very few good kings of, of Judah. Um, and we've talked about this for a while, but as you're reading through the books, the book of Kings, what you're going to see is there's going to be a lot of kings who are very terrible kings. Um, and there's going to be a few kings that are very good kings. Um, and obviously there's more than this, but there's Asa, uh, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah. I think those are the only ones I can think of who are like actually like good kings of Judah. And then Israel pretty much doesn't have any. So the Northern kingdom, I should say, doesn't have any, uh, the Southern kingdom of Judah has a few. It's one of those things I very well might be missing some, but there's not very many. Um, and Asa is really the first king who has to go through this journey of reforming uh, reforming the people of Israel, which is a, th- a theme that you'll see with all of the good kings. And so uh, Asa's father dies, Asa assumes the throne, and then Azariah was a prophet, and he comes to Asa and he said, told him, essentially to paraphrase it, that God would be with him as long as Asa serves him. Um, and Asa responds like this in chapter 15, Second Chronicles chapter 15, verses 8 through 15, it says this, As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all of the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the county and the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah, Benjamin, and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing within them for great numbers had deserted him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Which, side note, is a really interesting tidbit that, uh, again, during the reign of Rehoboam, the nation splits, uh, Judah is in the south, Israel's in the north, and it says that when Asa becomes king and people begin to realize that God is with Asa, there's actually a fair amount of the population that leaves Israel and they actually come to live in Judah because they want to be uh, with a king who serves God and they want to be with a king whose God's favor is on. So, really interesting thing there. Um, they were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all of their heart and with all of their soul. But whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all of their heart and had sought him with their whole desire. And he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around." Um, And it's just this really beautiful passage that, first off, to get the context of it, um, Israel had been dealing with constant war um, really since the time of Rehoboam, or I should say Judah, Um, and nothing major, kind of like what we see in the reigns of David and Saul, but essentially they're just people are pillaging and they're having to constantly be, uh, they're being constantly attacked. And it says that God gives them peace. And I also love that this isn't just some some lip service that they're paying to God, but it says that they're really swearing with all of their hearts that they want to pursue the Lord. Um, again, in the books of 
the book of Kings, we're going to see this a couple more times where um, the God's people drift away and then they come back under the leadership of a king who is willing to lead his people mm-hmm. back to back to the Lord. And it's just a beautiful moment of repentance. Um, Asa is a biblical character that we don't really talk about all of that much. But um, again, he's not perfect by any means. Um, I will read a little bit later about how he, he he messes up a little bit. I mean, we can read it this week. Um, it's nothing major, but obviously just like any man who's ever lived, he's not perfect. Um, but he really is a good king who sought after um, the heart of God in a, in a really beautiful way. Yeah, he really wanted to do what was righteous, what was uh, expected of a king to lead. Uh, and, I, and I think you see that from the migration of Israel to Judah, and you see that from the action. It wasn't just something they wanted to do, but they actually did it and by the sacrifices and the action it took. So um, such a great such a great passage. And I love that it actually kind of sets up Psalm 106 a little bit, though I'm going to take a few minutes to highlight from it, um, because it also shows, this psalm shows you how quickly it can turn. Sure. The, the intention is, I want to serve the Lord, I want to be faithful to Him, and then all of a sudden we forget. Uh, and it says this in, I guess I just let the cat out of the back, but it says this in twelve uh, verses 12 and 14 of, of chapter 106 of Psalms. It says, then his people believed His promises and they sang His praise. Great passage, right? It's a great line. And then verse 13 says this, yet how quickly they forgot what He had done. They wouldn't wait for His counsel. In the wilderness, their desires ran wild, testing God's patience in that dry wasteland. And it's interesting because it's it's often in, um, we see it on a cycle almost in the Old Testament, uh, how God's people are in this really high high of like, Lord, I want to follow you in this really low low of God, I'm rebelling against you because I'm not going to wait for you. Um, and I think it's worth noting for you and I, like our, our walks with Christ, if we'll take a moment and look back, are similar to that same cycle. We have really high highs and moments of like, we want to surrender and follow you just like Asa, where we want to serve the Lord. We want to do what's right. And then we grow impatient because he's not acting or moving like we want him to. And that's really the picture here in Psalm 106. It shows us, it reveals to us this tension. We believe God, we sing his praises, yet we forget what he had done and we didn't want to wait. And so in, our, in the wilderness, in other words, it's a season of where there's not a lot of life or vibrancy, so they're trying to figure out ways to make it work or survive or find food. They Their desires are wild. They chase after every whimsical um, every whimsical thing they came across. Um, and there's a, there's a phrase that I came to mind when I was reading this, this psalm this week uh, in preparation for today as we launch into it. Uh, this coming week was just this, this, this idea of off by an inch, off by a mile. And it's it's when I learned it, it was a nautical illustration where if you're if you're setting a course on a map and you go and you're off an inch if you continue on that path you end up becoming off by at least a mile of your trajectory of where your destination was planning right. it is also an air, uh, it's a, an arrow space thing maybe that's sure. right but it's one flying too if yeah. you're off by one degree you could be off by hundreds of miles at the end of it and there's actually i think there was a story years ago about a plane that was off and ran out of fuel and crashed because it was off by one degree and no lo- nowhere near its destination. Well, and oftentimes when I'm playing uh, Sea of Thieves with my crew, what is when that? We're, it's a pirate game, Aaron, obviously. When we're going from one island to the other and we just set our course and forget to check the map, we'll be off So as, huge amounts. Listen, so as a parent <laughs> of kids, when you say a pirate game, my mind immediately goes to the Fantasy Fortress here in Marysville where you're playing pirates and not a video game that you play with your friends. Gotcha, so, fair enough. Um, it was super funny. I was laughing in my head about that. But I just think, yeah, I just think it's a great reminder and challenge for you and I that we've got to continue and really be on guard. 
And the scriptures will constantly remind us of this. We'll see this cycle all throughout the scripture of uh, we've seen God's praises. We're excited about what he's doing, but then we forget. And when we forget what God has done, which is why we have to continue to be reminded of who God is and what he's doing, then then we become off by an inch and then a mile. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, thought to end it on for this week. Um, so that wraps it up for another episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, just a reminder that we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast of the Grove Church. You can check out all of our podcasts and resources on our website at grove.church. And then just do us a favor, leave us a review on whatever application you're listening on. It really helps get the podcast out there and grow this community of people reading the Bible together. Thank you so much, and we will see you